1: warriors in their own words, is brought to you by the Honor Project, committed to putting the heroes of our nation on record. This presentation is dedicated to the brave men and women of the United States Armed Forces. Walter Bodlander was born in Germany in 1920. As a Jew, he knew he had to flee Hitler's regime. He eventually made his way to the United States and volunteered to join the US Army to fight the Nazis. We interviewed Walter in 1994. He was a great storyteller and offered a very unique perspective on facing German troops in Europe.
2: My background is as follows. I was, uh, I'm Jewish and I was 12 years old when the Nazis uh, took over. Then by the time I was 15, And it was clear that uh, it was very dangerous for Jews to live in Germany. My parents uh, sent me to Switzerland to school. And so I was raised in a high school situation in Switzerland, in a French-speaking part of Switzerland. And um, went back to Germany until uh, shortly before the war broke out. And then my parents, my father died in Germany, and my mother got out. And I had applied for a visa to the United States, uh, but you had to wait three, four years before you could get the visa. You had to wait. And so during that period, I was uh, in France and then later on in Palestine. And eventually I came to America when the visa came. It was 1940. And uh, I was very anxious to get involved in this war. I felt it was a very personal battle, as it were, to, to fight a, a regime of that nature. And so on December 7th, uh, 1941, Uh, I volunteered for the draft and was immediately taken. And so in January 42, I was uh, in Camp uh, Roberts in California in basic training. And then they didn't know what to do with me because my English was not very good then. So uh, they didn't know what to do with me. Everybody else around me was being assigned and and I was not. And finally I asked why and they said, well, uh, you're not a citizen and we don't know what to do exactly. And so then Congress passed a law, very shortly thereafter, May 1942, Congress passed a uh, a, a, a law that all enemy, no, all aliens who had volunteered into the army, not drafted, but volunteered in the army, could become citizens immediately. And so I became a citizen the next week in San Luis Obispo, and lo and behold, then I was being uh, assigned to an artillery regiment. I was in field artillery with my training, and then there, eventually, I was asked to go, I was assigned to military
1: intelligence. Baudlander trained as a military intelligence officer at Camp Ritchie, Maryland. The army wanted to use his fluency in German to interrogate Nazi prisoners on the front lines. Walter was soon dispatched to England to join the D-Day invasion.
2: Was a second lieutenant at the time of the invasion, and I was with the Fourth Infantry Division, Eighth Infantry Regiment. We started uh, training in England. We were stationed. The division was stationed in the area of Tiverton, in Devon, and we were stationed specifically in Exeter. My unit, the interrogation of prisoners of war, was attached to the regiment or into the division, regiment and battalions, and so we trained exactly like the infantry would train. We were doing 21 mile hikes, we were doing running exercises, uh, and our invasion training, most of the invasion training consisted of learning how to waterproof vehicles, the jeeps and uh, other vehicles, so that they could uh, be driven underwater, that the engine could be totally flooded and still be able to drive. So the so-called uh, waterproofing the vehicles was a very complicated task. It was extremely messy. Some kind of glue had to be put throughout this whole engine, and large air hoses had to be put on the exhaust so that the vehicle could function. And no, no vehicle could drive more than four or five miles with this glue on it. So the job was not only to waterproof it but also to know how to unwaterproof it as fast as possible so that you could use it once you had landed. So that was basically the idea. And we were given designations as to where we would embark. So that had to be all be organized very carefully because thousands and thousands of people had to find a specific little boat landing barge and know when to start and where to be and blah, 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 stuff of that nature. So these exercises lasted frequently four or five days. There was a staging spot, then you had to waterproof the vehicle shortly before you embarked, then you had to drive to the embarkation, which was in Plymouth, on the right barge, on the right little uh, LTVP or whatever it was at the time, the uh, thing that drops the front down. And then we went off into the high seas and usually got seasick. And after about a day or so, we landed. And the landing was always at Slapton Sands. Now, uh, Slapton Sands was a part of uh, Devon. And it uh, looked presumably what Normandy might be looking like. It was flat, dunes, and not, not very hard to land on. And we would land, usually get a bit wet, uh, the question was always, when would the Navy operator of the barge drop the flap? Because we always wanted him to drop it right on the beach and he said, no, we won't, and you have to w- wait and so, But we never dropped terribly wet, well. it wasn't terrible. It was uh, feasible. And then on the beach we would be picked up by trucks and then brought back to our normal station. Eventually the vehicles would come back. We would learn how to unwaterproof the tr- vehicles and that was it. Uh, There was a great deal of uh, physical training, a lot of running, a lot of marches. Uh, We were supposed to be in tip-top shape, and we actually were. In January or February of 1944, we were sent to a maneuver to Scotland, way up north, and it was terribly cold. We went up there in a large troop ship, not at all like the normal maneuvers. From the troop ship, the invasion forces were ordered to get on these small boats. And when we were on the small boat, uh, again on the LTVPs, but without any vehicles, just men, they would bring us to the shore and then approximately maybe a half a mile from the shore, it seemed that way, maybe it's only 100 feet, but it looked like a half a mile, they would drop the, uh, the flap. And we would tell this guy, you're crazy, you know, it's way over there is where you're supposed to land, not here, and he says, nope, the exercises you get off now. And so with a rifle only, and no vehicles, we were supposed to swim ashore. And I'm sure that's how you saw these nice uh, newsreel pictures, because there were thousands of people trying to, you couldn't even, you literally could just barely feel the ground underneath you. So you had to swim a little bit, water tread, and try to move forward, and then eventually you got where you could wait on shore and it was bitter cold, it was miserable and once we were on shore we were told now you have to stay for eight hours and wait to be picked up, you may not build a fire that was the idea, you'd be wet and wait for eight hours and eventually you just keep yourself warm by running around by by flapping your arms and by cursing and trussing, and that was the exercise, that was the whole idea of that exercise When the, in the beginning uh, also many times we went on invasion exercises and each time we believed it would be the real thing because the first time around we were issued live ammunition. Well, that was obvious, that was the real thing. Then it turned out to be slapped in sands and the next uh, two weeks later, there's another alert for an exercise and this time we got live ammunition and blood plasma. So that must be the real thing. Still it was slapped in sands. And then the next time they had uh, live ammunition, blood plasma, and and they had uh, a whole series of medals you know, that they were going to give out on the spot. So that would be the real thing. Well, it was never the real thing. And when the real thing really began, it was entirely different because we were taken out of the quarters in Exeter and the various uh, towns, and moved into large fields, and these fields in uh, Devon were then parted with uh, barbed wires, and no one was allowed to move out of one field into the next field, Only, even though it was the same units, only special passes could you have to go from one unit to the other. And then, in a specific field, there were tents in which the uh, various maps were given out, and the officers in charge of the units like myself went to those, were were escorted to those tents and we were given the maps of the area where we really would invade. We didn't know it would be Normandy, it might have been elsewhere, nobody knew where and so now for the first time we knew it was Normandy and we knew it was specifically called Utah Beach and we were given this section of Utah Beach, there were large relief maps in those tents of the specific area, what it would look like, where we would land Here's a beach and then there's a little incline and then there is an oak tree to the left and there's a pine tree on the right and there's a hedgerow in front of you and you cross it and you come to a little road and you turn to the left. And so you knew exactly what it would look like because you saw it in front of you, you saw the aerial photography, but we didn't know when we would land and we were given invasion money so that all the troops were paid with uh, French money, well, with American money, it was called invasion money, with American money in francs, and the idea was that probably the real French money would not be worth anything, and our money would become the stuff that we were supposed to use to buy food from the farmers. We were told that we would not be supplied for the first five days, and had to take care of ourselves, for four days, I think it was, and we were told not to drink water, drink anything except water. You drink wine, cook the water, and drink tea and coffee if you can. No no fresh water. And uh, then we went back to the field waiting. And uh, this took four or five days, and nobody knew when D-Day was. We knew now where we would land, but we didn't know when we would and nobody knew, this This staging took at least 10 or 12 days and finally the orders came to move and when we started to move there were these long, long convoys that went to Plymouth and Portsmouth for the embarkation areas. As we had before, but this time for some reason the population who had never given any thought to what we were doing and and were so used to American invasion forces training that we had embarked many, many times with no particular uh, concern to the population. This time the population was out along the roads of the drive to the uh, to the boats with flags and with handkerchiefs and waving and they knew I don't know how but they knew it was the actual thing, it was very moving. well then we were on these uh, tiny little uh, LTVPs and uh, these landing barges and uh, it was very windy very high uh, sea the waves went into the barge so nobody was dry we were constantly wet and there were no facilities there no toilet of course it's just like a rowboat a large open rowboat with the navy men commanding the damn thing and we were, and still we didn't know when we would land. And he was not allowed to tell us. He had to wait for orders by some kind of a radio system. And then he had an envelope that he was to open, and that would then tell him at what hour to land and how. And so uh, these orders never came. And finally, he, we've, we, we, uh, since I was on the same barge with uh, the colonel of this whole unit who was in charge of the invasion, Colonel Van Fleet, he managed to give an order to that Navy man to open the envelope, and it turned out that we were supposed to land on the 5th, according to the envelope, but the orders had been countermanded, and the actual landing took place 24 hours later on the morning of the 6th. I did sleep a little bit. I remember I was lying underneath a jeep, one of the jeeps, in water, (laughs) I don't know why I was under the jeep, maybe to avoid the salt water coming in, I don't remember that, but I do remember lying underneath the jeep and finally falling sort of asleep and waking up on the morning of the 5th and thought, well, damn it, I thought the invasion would take place this morning, and it obviously hadn't. Everybody was absolutely miserable, just as miserable as you could be. So when it finally came to the invasion, uh, which was the night, the early morning hours of the 6th. We, we could see the bombing. The, the major bombing had not taken place before. It was some bombing. We were fairly close to the shore at all times so that we could not see the shore, but we could see the flashes of the bombs landing on the shore. And in the dark hours of the morning of the 6th, this bombing was fierce. I mean, you, then we knew that would... That, This was really the preparation for the actual landing. And so so it was, and we landed in daylight. We had all been worried about landing at night. Uh, uh, Our units were not ready to fight at night at all. And so we were very happy that we landed. All all our invasion training was in daylight, too. So we did land in daylight. And uh, when we did land, I, personally, it was about half an hour before H-hour, and there was... Just a little bit of machine gun fire and a few mortar shells were falling on the beach, and it was practically the easiest thing in the world. There was no major fighting at all in the first half hour or so. We had immediately captured a few Germans who were stunned from the bombing. They were in one of the uh, bombed-out bunkers. And so I stayed on the beach for a few more minutes, maybe a half an hour, trying to interrogate them. They had nothing to say. They knew nothing. They were confused, we were confused. It was not very much to be gotten. And the orders basically were to get off the beach and to establish some kind of beachhead by moving on. And so we began to, I know Van Fleet was with me, and he said, let's move on, let's get moving. And so we moved up the dune and the On the left was supposed to be a pine tree, on the right was supposed to be the oak tree. There were no pine trees, there were no oak trees, there were no windmills, there were no signs of anything familiar at all. And of course, when we got off the beach itself, there was no road. So all the things that we had so carefully prepared were just not there, and everybody was utterly confused. And we stopped at a. We came to a little crossroads, and I remember when Fleet put his map down. He had a map in his hand. He had. A, he had a pistol, which he had drawn, and I had no weapons except the pistol, which I have, wasn't using. There was no Germans in sight. Uh, all around us were just young American troops moving in, uh, and. We were receiving artillery fire, and I was beginning to get a little hot. so we are on this crossroads, and we are looking at the map, and suddenly this crossroads is receiving artillery fire, so we learned never to stop it at a crossroads, because that was a point where people, where the Germans were training their guns at. Well, eventually we got off, and eventually we got lo- located a little bit. There were marshes around in that area; it was very dangerous not to get caught in the marshes. And we found out where they were. We we finally located ourselves on the map, and we got into Saint Mary's Lees that night. And Saint Mary's Lees is where the paratroopers had uh, had landed, and we were supposed to meet them around noon, I suppose, and we didn't. It was in the evening. And then St. Mary-Dly's was still, uh, we were ordered to move on. It was on the road, this was the road that led eventually in one direction to Cherbourg, and we were supposed to move on to that. So St. was captured, uh, so we moved on, and that night we were uh, on a road leading to Cherbourg, and in direct, constantly in direct fire with the Germans. There was a German machine gun positions that kept firing at us it was very, uh, very, very miserable and very frightening, and um, uh, and quite dangerous.
0: So, did you feel confident going over? You know, when you actually went for the real invasion? Absolutely. The
2: I, I, oh, yeah. Everybody felt totally ready, very much so, and uh, I'm. The early people like, like us, we were so happy to get on land that nothing was worse than being on the water with that very terrible weather. I was delighted to finally find that we were on land. Nothing was worse than that. And for the first few days, the weather evidently was terrible, and we didn't have any ammunition. Then it's where the ammunition began to be short because the, uh, the ammunition ships couldn't land. The weather was so terrible, and there was a general... Roosevelt uh, he was a son I think of Teddy Roosevelt he was quite old he was a wonderful man he was in his, he must have been in his 70s he had his unarmed he had a a, a, a cane with him and he was right there on the beach
1: despite a heart condition and arthritis that forced him to use a cane Brigadier General Theodore Roosevelt Jr. was the first US General to wade ashore on D-Day
2: must have landed first day, uh, and he came to, he, I, I knew him very well, he came to me and to the front lines all the time during the first four or five days in Normandy, and he was enormously courageous because he came to us where, and, and told us what was happening on the beach. And so he told us, well, he says, don't worry. The first ships are landing, and more troops are landing. And then he would disappear, then go back to the beach and tell them that we've already moved up to the land where we've captured St. Mary's, and don't worry about it. And then he came back to us and told us more ships are landing. He says, yeah, it's a little short of ammunition, but don't worry, it's coming in tomorrow. The weather is getting better. So we got wonderful intelligence from him. He's a great guy. Uh, I remember him very well. And I also remember at one time we were uh, asked whether we had how much ammunition we had. I had a machine gun, and we had uh, 50 caliber on the jeep, and uh, was, must have had about 500 rounds. And I was told to give up 200 rounds because uh, the front needed it immediately. and We didn't need it except in a breakthrough situation. So it was very, very tight. Ammunition was very tight for the first maybe week or so. Then came the uh, the paratroopers and. The parachute landings had occurred um, sometime in the same time with the glider landing. Gliders came into Normandy about the fourth or fifth day or maybe third day. We had seen in the hedgerow fields large poles all over the, in every field and couldn't quite understand what these poles were about. But when the gliders came in, we found out what they were about because the gliders have, have to have space to land. They came in at about 50, 60 miles an hour, just wood, no seat belts, and these things came. We knew they would land. We were told to greet them and that we would, they would be our reinforcements, so we were waiting for them. We saw them coming in, and suddenly they're on top of us, and they were very dangerous to the ground troops because they had no place. You know, They come in at 50 miles an hour, 40 miles. It's like a car coming at you, except the size of a glider with those huge wings. And worse, when they landed, they had no place to go, and the wings would hit those poles, And so the wing would break off, the glider would flip up in the air, fall, explode practically, Uh, wood explosion, not a real explosion, just in wood. And 90% of the people in the gliders, 90% of the soldiers in the gliders were useless. They were all damaged, they were all hurt, broken backs, broken limbs, broken everything. It was horrible, absolutely terrible. One of the worst experiences I've ever seen. We had very heavy casualties in the very beginning. One of our communication jeeps was hit directly. And we all had been issued morphine, by the way. All the invasion troops had little kits of morphine. And uh, this was a very good friend of mine. It was a man whom I, he he was a communications officer whom I had befriended and uh, he was in that jeep, and he and four people, several were killed. He was about to die, and very badly wounded. And uh, there was nobody around to, to help out, and so I gave him my morphine.
0: What is that like, the first? I mean, this was your first combat, right? Yeah. So what is oh, it yeah. like to, to see those first casualties?
2: It uh, numbs you. The, the only way I can answer it is that there was a, a numb feeling, of just, uh, when it happens to somebody else you're numb and you try to do whatever you can uh, later than, the, you know, when, when the day ends and the unit uh, beds down as it were and there's no further advances and you're in fire all the time, it becomes extremely frightening I, I remember shaking, I couldn't sleep uh, sometimes I was, in, in a hedgerow, hiding. You know, everything Everything presented was supposed to be shelter. You know, a hedgerow felt like shelter by crawling right into this vegetation. Obviously, the better sense will tell you that it doesn't protect you at all, but it seemed to protect you, and so that's what everybody went for, is to find some way of getting out of harm's way. So you're very frightened... But I think the majority of people were able to function very well. Very well. What uh, frightened most everybody, most of all, and totally disabled the uh, uh, unit, would be air attacks. Uh, the Germans had the Stutters, these are the uh, planes that were coming down and strafing by coming directly, vertically down on you and then zooming up, and they made a horrible noise. There were very few of those. And we had complete control of the air. We had uh, 99% comp- control of the air. But there were occasional German attacks, air attacks. But when they came, they just they stopped everything cold in their tracks. And sometimes there would be an advance audit, and we I would be maybe three, four hundred yards behind the line and uh, with the regimental headquarters. And suddenly they'd, they'd say, well, we have to go up there and talk to some prisoners. And I said, well, where are we? And looked at the map and we hadn't moved. And the reason we hadn't moved is because there was one German plane stopping the whole advance. I mean, it was amazing. So that really convinced me then and more so today that we have an enormous gratitude that's never been much expressed to the, to the Soviet Army, to the Red Army, because that's where the German airline air uh, weapons were. The German aircraft and the German air army was engaged in, in the Eastern Front. And had they been where we were, we would not have been able to make the invasion. It would have been. There's no, no question that the fact that we had air superiority made it possible for us to win uh, the beachhead, and eventually the breakthrough. Because uh, from my own experience, just two or three German planes delayed us enormously. Maybe if we had had more, we would have learned to deal with them. But that was one of the most terrorizing feelings. Nothing, nothing ever uh, terrorized me more than one of these German planes coming down and strafing.
0: Did you have any occasion to witness the Allied air support? And was that was
2: it was there constant, Was oh yeah, it was always. It was Allied planes were in the air most of the time, but basically they were ahead of us. They were, either they had bombed before we landed or they were doing other things, but we had air protection. The fact that the German planes weren't there was, was evidence that American planes were there. A German plane came over every night Bedtime Charlie was known. It was a German observation plane. It was not in any danger to us. Uh, it flew fairly high, very slow, sort of like a like a Piper truck. like the same type of planes we had. And they were using these planes to um, for intelligence purposes and to direct artillery fire. And it came over our lines, and everybody shot traces at them, you know, machine guns. We never hit the damn thing. Around the second day, or the third day, I don't remember exactly which, the first prisoners were taken from units that had been rushed to stem the invasion. And the unit was a German parachute regiment, the 6th Parachute Regiment, commanded by somebody whose name I now forgot. And it all began that in the early morning, the one of the company uh, asked me to come up to the front, which was practically 100 yards away. He says, there are some Germans who want to surrender, and we need you to to talk to them. And so I went down, I went there, and there was a hedgerow field, and in front of me is an empty field, a hedgerow, and then there's another hedgerow on the far side where the Germans are sitting. I said, I don't see any white flag. Yes, they had. there were some people with a white flag. Definitely they want to surrender. So we waited for a little bit and nothing happened. So finally I said, well, I'll go out with a white handkerchief and see if somebody wants to surrender. So I'll have a white handkerchief and they probably won't shoot at me. So I did that. And I went in the middle of the field. And a German uh, sergeant comes up. And uh, totally mystified. And I said to him, and I spoke German, of course, so I spoke to him in German. And I said, I hear that you guys want to surrender. He said, No, I don't know what you're talking about. And I said, Well, my unit just told me that they saw two or three people with white flags. Oh, we had, a, we had a, a, a soldier who was wounded, and we wanted to get him back. So we went out with the, the Red Cross people, went out with a white flag to get the soldier back. So I said, Well, now, uh, as long as we're talking about surrender, what about it? Well, don't you think it's a good idea? And he says, Well, he says, I don't know. Uh, he says, I, I don't care about the war. I just as well already you surrender, but I can't without permission. And I said, Well, who would give you permission? So he says, Well, I have to ask my lieutenant. I said, You mean he, he might be agreeing? He says, Well, yeah, I, I think so. So he said, OK. We'll meet in 10 minutes. So he went back and I went back and I'm very excited because I'm getting a first surrender of a whole bunch of units of soldiers. And uh, Major Todd, who was the military intelligence uh, uh, S2 for the regiment, was my immediate commander. And he was 100 yards back someplace in a command post. So we had a telephone, a field telephone. I telephoned him and I said, I'm getting uh, units to surrender. And he said, well, when? And I said, I don't know when, but I'm meeting again in 10 minutes. He says, well, better hurry up, because we're ordered to attack. We have to, do, we have to move. He so says, well, it's only 10 minutes. He said, okay, that's no problem. So I go back out. In 10 minutes, the sergeant shows up. And he said, well, uh, talk to the lieutenant, and we've talked to the men, and everybody is willing to surrender, but they have to have permission from their commanding general, from their commanding officer. But who is that? He said, well, it's a it's a colonel. Uh, uh, and I said, well, how long will it take to get the permission? He said, about half an hour. He asked for us for you to wait for half an hour and if the colonel agrees, then the whole unit will surrender. And I said, well, I, I, is it for real? He said, absolutely, definitely. So Fifteen more minutes. I said, half an hour can't wait. How about 15 minutes? Okay, 15 minutes. So we move, it, we move back to then 15 minutes, and I'm reporting to my to, to Major Todd, and five minutes later, Todd comes back on the phone, and he says, get the hell out of there. We have orders to attack, and you've got to stop this nonsense, and we're attack, We're moving. And I said, you can't do that. I'm getting, you know, these people are in a good faith. They, they're trying to su- arrange a surrender. We can't attack now and shell them. So he said, well, we have to have preparatory artillery fire and we have to move. No, no, no. So I persuaded him not to move and I went out again. And this time a lieutenant came out and he said, we talked to the colonel and the colonel wants to talk to you personally and if you come over, we'll guarantee you a free uh, travel from from the front to the colonel and back. And I said, well, I can't do that without having permission from my uh, commander. He says, okay, we'll wait here. So I rush back and I telephoned uh, uh, Todd, and Todd says, you're nuts. And I said, no, no, no. And they're taking me behind the line. They're taking me to their command post. They must be serious. This is really, I mean, this is the greatest thing in the world that I'm stopping World War II by myself, alone, right here on the invasion front so uh, Todd says well wait a minute he calls Van Fleet and Van Fleet must have given him holy hell and Todd comes back and he says get out because the 12th regiment is already (laughs) they've already advanced a mile and a half and we're sitting here on our ass and get the hell out of here and tell him that it's out of the question and so I had to go back and said sorry no dice and so the lieutenant went back, and the sergeant was lingering, and I said, well, look, is there anybody who wants to come with me? And the sergeant said, well, he said, uh, wait till the lieutenant leaves. I said, we have no time. There's absolutely no time. He said, just stay out here in the field, and I promise you nobody will shoot at you. And as soon as the lieutenant left, I know there are 10 or 12 people who want to surrender. So I stayed in the field, and that that my people couldn't shoot. And then the lieutenant disappeared, the sergeant disappeared, I stayed in the field, five minutes later, four people came over and surrendered. Two of them were wounded, <laughs> and one was the sergeant himself. And they did, so I, I got four people out of this whole deal. And I got wholly held, because we were held back from the attack, which started immediately, the artillery fire started in the preparation, and on both sides, on the right of us and to the left of us, the other regiments had already moved up. We were held behind, but we managed to catch up. That was my big time of glory. Two weeks later, I was wounded. Uh, Then I was with Van Fleet, and we were both wounded in the same time by shrapnel. A um, uh, mortar shell hit and wounded us. And then the fighting was very tough. It was very, very dangerous and very uh, hedgerow fighting. You couldn't dig in, really. They didn't have time to dig foxholes. At least the ordinary soldier didn't. The command post was in foxholes. And, but the ordinary soldier had h- hardly time to dig in. And eventually, um, we came to Sherbrooke. Well, the unit that captured Sherbrooke was the 12th Infantry Regiment. It was a sister regiment, same division. But we, I wasn't there at that point. I was behind the lines. And by the time we came into Cherbourg, I was ordered to guard, um, with my men, to guard a fortification. Cherbourg is a city where the mountains are facing the uh, beach, the harbor. And into the mountains, the Germans built uh, gun emplacements, and these gun emplacements go along the whole mountain range facing the harbor, and uh, we had captured that of, we meaning my unit had captured that. the uh, 12th Infantry had captured it, and now it was full of German guns, big heavy artillery, field artillery against the harbor, uh, against invasions from the, from the sea, and somebody had to be there so that roaming German units would not recapture those areas and so I was assigned to this. Now these installations were all inside the mountain in long, endless corridors of, of mountain tunnels in the mountain, and there was no electricity anymore, so it was all pitch dark, and the only way you could see anything was with a flashlight. And all we had to do, really, is to dart the entrance to this to these tunnels, and occasionally, if you would go five or 600 yards, you'd find some daylight coming through, and that was a done emplacement, against the harbor and then it was dark again and so i went in a little bit further because i knew it was no danger at all the germans had surrendered that area and um, i went in a little bit and i realized this must be a command post around here most likely there will be a command post and it would be great to find documentation to plans of what they might be doing so i started to look into those dark little rooms and chambers that were with flashlight and i found one and i touched it and it was obviously paper so I took the flashlight and the knife and I slid into the sack and I thought maybe I'll get some very important documents and what I found was French money and it was the French currency, regular French money and it was sacks and sacks and sacks and sacks a room full of sacks of paper money it was obviously a payroll for the whole region and so I opened a few of those sacks and there were 10,000 franc notes and 5,000 franc notes and 20,000 franc notes and 500 franc notes. And I stuffed myself full of those thing. I said, hey, that's fun. This is play money. When we play cribbage, or we have nothing to do because in the war you wait a lot. So I took a lot of the money and eventually gave it to my friends and to Todd got a whole bunch of that money. And we began to play cribbage. for, I think, 100 francs was worth Uh, $10, so it's approximately that ratio. So we were playing cribbage for $100 a point and bridge for $2,000 a point. And we were lighting silhouettes with French money until we decided it might be worthwhile to see if the French would use this money and honor it. And so we went to the first farmhouse we came to on the way back from Normandy, uh, back into France proper. And lo and behold, the French were very willing to accept this money so we got eggs and wine and what have you from the farmers and money to, to, to burn. Well, about a month later we were being paid for the first time, the first uh, uh, units came up to pay the front troops and when we were being paid we expected to be paid of course in, in invasion money which is what we really were supposed to have and we were paid in the French money, in the real French money. So. Had I held on to all that money I would have had an enormous amount of valuable American money because we were paid in French money but we had the right to send it home right away. And so consequently I could have sent thousands of dollars home but it had all been burned up and given away. (laughs) Later on I found out there were 40 million dollars worth of French money in that area. It's literally the payroll of the uh, German army for that whole region. And uh, because there was so much currency available, the American army decided to use it, and so and the French accepted. It was never changed. The invasion money disappeared completely. It was never used. So this is in Luxembourg, and we had been in Luxembourg on a uh, on a river line for very. Uh, we had gone through a very bad battle, and my unit was relieved and put into a sort of a rest area almost. But it was still front line, but there was no, no, no fighting really to speak of. And so one day on Christmas Day or thereabouts, maybe Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, in that period of time, I managed to take my jeep and to take my driver and my jeep and to go back behind the lines to Luxembourg City where I had heard of a castle that was giving a party for the Allied soldiers available. And so I went there. And had a wonderful evening and a wonderful time and got royally drunk and woke up in the morning, the next morning, on the floor. And uh, the lady of the house, or whatever it was, woke me up and said, you better go back to your unit. Something is happening. And I had no idea what she's talking about, but she must have heard something on the radio. And besides, I needed to go back to my unit, so I collected Johnny Bear, my driver, and we got into the jeep and we are driving back, and all of a sudden I'm being stopped on my way to my own unit, which was maybe five miles towards the front. I'm being stopped by an American outpost, and I couldn't figure out why there would be an outpost behind our own lines. And the guy stops me and said, do you have papers? And I said, no, I don't have any papers, but I'm, a, I'm already a captain, so I feel reasonably secure about this whole thing. And he said, wait a minute, he said, uh, uh, where you, what unit are you from? I tell him, I said, what's going on? He says, and the more I speak, the more suspicious he becomes. And and I said, well, what's the matter with you? He says, get off the jeep. And all of a sudden I'm surrounded by five or six guys with weapons drawn, and I'm being captured by my own unit, by my own people. And I said, well, what's going on? He says, well, you're a German. You're a German. He says, no, I'm from Los Angeles. Oh, yeah, you're from Los Angeles. What's the football team? What's the baseball team in Los Angeles? I know. I know nothing about it. Uh, It wasn't even the Dodgers then. You know, it was some small team. I didn't know anything. So they asked me about football, about baseball, about... I know nothing. I've been in the America for less than two years, and most of the time in the Army. I know nothing about customs American. Well, now he's totally convinced, and so... I, I'm about to be shot. It was not very funny, but they were absolutely certain that I was German spy, and that, or, or in, worse than that, invading, uh, you know, coming in and, and shooting at, and they're ready to shoot me. And finally, I persuaded them. I said, "Look, I, I tell you, Major Tardes, my off officer, general, blah blah blah," and give them the whole order of battle of of our units, and that was it. And I said, "Here, take the damn machine gun." And you man the machine gun, and here is my sidearm, and drive me back. You know, I'm disarmed. I mean, the best you can do is you have captured German spies. So I finally persuaded them to do that. And so they marched me into Major Todd, who thought it was the funniest thing in the world. And I didn't survive that. For a long time, I was being ridiculed for this little episode where I was captured by our own people. But what had happened is that it was the beginning of the German counterattack that eventually led to the Bulge and the Battle of the Bulge. But the Bulge was not... We were just at the very edge of it. But what the Germans had done in the main part is they had taken the front element of that German thrust against our lines was led by German troops in American uniforms and in American vehicles that they had captured and or, or repainted uh, their own vehicles painted with our own colors on it and so that these everybody was warned to look for suspicious american looking personnel well i'm number one suspect i don't blame it except i had no idea what was going on because i came from a high party in luxembourg and they were at, at total war footing and so that was the one experience that i almost didn't survive
0: <laughs> yeah. Let's get back uh, to Normandy uh, now and uh, maybe if you could just give me um, some impressions of, uh, of moving through the hedgerows and what that's like. That well, the
2: hedgerows of Normandy, and I went back to Normandy in 1980 or thereabouts, and it's all changed. They, I don't know what they did with the hedgerows, but they don't ex- seem to exist anymore. But then... The fields were in small little parcels, and each parcel what would be maybe, mm, oh, 50 yards long and 100 yards wide. That's about a football field size, or maybe smaller. Even. And all around, these, each field was, a, was a, uh, surrounded by hedgerows. And you could not ever see through those hedgerows. So whatever was on the other side was always a great mystery and except the mystery was was usually german machine guns and uh in the f- very early part of the fighting was very dangerous for that reason because you just shelled and shot against empty space and then in when the order came to advance you advanced and you'd hope that you had hit something but you didn't know for sure and that was not really my experience very much because I only once was in a situation where I was at a f- little front line. Um, I was usually a hundred yards or so behind the front and then was called to the front to to, cap- to take the captured prisoner back or to go on a patrol. But uh, And patrol is different. But the hedgerows themselves were terrible because they were so mysterious to us and, and they were you couldn't escape it. That was the only territory there was, and uh, it was—it felt very dangerous.
0: What's your impression after talking to some of the prisoners? Did they still feel like they could, the Germans could win, or did they feel overwhelmed? I
2: didn't really distrust that at that time. Uh, later on, in retrospect, I talked with prisoners because I was in Germany until November after the war so i spoke to the population at large and i had occasion to speak to them and there were very different experiences but the the prisoners that we took immediately uh were occasionally we took some very old people there were some lunch storm people that had been there uh, but that was in the very these were people they were sort of guarding the the area of normandy because the nazis and Hitler specifically didn't believe the invasion would take place in Normandy. He believed it would be in Germany proper. And so uh, the v- regional forces stationed in the area were older and very young people. And they were, if, I don't even remember today how they felt about the war, I can't tell you that. But they were not the troops that we fought most of the time. That was just at the very beginning and then came the 6th Parachute Regiment, and after that, we were constantly facing uh, tromba troops, you know, regular combat troops. The morale of the Germans, I think, was fairly high. Uh, I don't remember mm, any indication that they really given up on the war. Okay, round two. Name something that's not
0: boring.
1: A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh?
0: Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. by law. plus.
1: Terms conditions apply. website for details.
0: What type of uh, respect did uh, did the other infantrymen have for the? Uh, the German paratroop uh, it sounds like they were pretty
2: top-notch uh, I think our infantry uh, our units in general respected the German units but they fight, they were hard fighters uh, and there was a difference the war was I mean I hear what the war is in in Vietnam particularly but uh, the war in Europe was different the the, the lines were drawn clearly and the Germans were the Germans, and we were fighting the Huns, the Germans, and the bastards. They were bad, but we also realized that the average soldier was not responsible for what the regime was doing. Uh, and so we had a um, not exactly a comrade, we would be wrong, but it was a, a, a reasonable respect for each other. I, I believe that uh, a friend of mine was captured and was a prisoner in Germany. He was a friend after the war. Uh, and he had been captured and, uh, and um, was in prisoner of war camp in Germany. And he said that uh, terrible as it, and he's Jewish to boot, but terrible as it was, they were not really mistreated. So there was a certain, uh, they were the Germans at that stage seemed to have abided by the Geneva Convention, and so did we by and large. We also had people who shot prisoners. I saw one of my, I was called to interrogate a prisoner. By the time I was there on the front, he was dead. And he was a prisoner. So sometimes somebody who had just seen his own pal shot just took a pistol and shot the next German he found. So that happened. But that was not what usually happened at all.
0: But so you think, out of that mutual respect, and even as far as some of the frontline war crimes were concerned, there was, it was probably going on on both sides?
2: Yes. There's no doubt of that. And there were not many war crimes on the front line. and war crimes are usually committed by, by uh, people in the back, in the rear. They were, the, the front line soldier is just an ordinary, usually an ordinary guy who does whatever he's supposed to do. I can't find a whole lot of fault with them. But, uh, you know, by the same token, um, you feel, you know, you know you're going to kill him. You have to, you know, unless he surrenders and gives up. And uh, my job was always to find out where the, the immediate tactical information is. You know, where are the machine gun emplacements? Where is the artillery? Uh, when did you last eat? And are you fresh troops, new troops? Is, this, is somebody relieving you? Uh, are you decimated or are you in full strength? That kind of information is what I needed to know. And that's what we found out. It was Generally, and the prisoners didn't stay with me very long, you know, it doesn't that they encamp here now that because we're moving all the time, so they move back and we move forward. So the encounter is a half an hour and then off comes the next match or nobody.
0: So tell me, by was your confidence and your unit's confidence just riding so high when you just moved right in on the beach and all of a sudden you're inland and then you're in St. Mary Glees? And-
2: uh, well. Uh, No, we were very confused. We were very frightened. The reason we were so confused uh, when we landed in Normandy is that we had been given these relief maps to show us exactly where to land, and then when we did land, nothing was there. It turned out that because of the bad weather, the whole invasion unit of of our particular beach, Utah Beach, had been pushed a mile south, I believe so that where we landed was not where we were supposed to be landing. And that's why nothing fit, in the beginning at least. And, um, no, there was no confidence. We didn't know whether we would be pushed back or not. Uh, We only knew that there was no immediate horrible resistance. We didn't know what happened in Omaha, for instance, where the 1st Division landed and hit a, a German regiment on full maneuver. Uh, and and had horrible casualties and almost didn't make it. We didn't have that problem. And so uh, it wasn't that we were terribly confident and we were just... You don't even think of confidence, really. You just think of survival. That's all you're really thinking about, is worm. And I hated to move forward. Every time I had found a spot where I had survived overnight and then you, the orders came for a new attack and new moving forward or the units are moving forward and we have to follow them, that was a horror because uh, that meant coming into unknown territory and maybe you wouldn't survive there. You know? It was not at all one of confidence. And, and don't think it was camaraderie in the sense of, all oh, these fellows over there, they're good chaps and we just happened to fight them. It was, uh, they were the enemy. You, know? they were, you'd only get, you only live once and you only get killed once and you try not to. And so you kill or shoot and do everything and you don't think of them as, as nice people at all, no i mean don't get that idea of this movie stuff that uh, the valiant enemy not at all uh, they were brutal nazis and we knew it
0: let's talk a little bit more about uh, the german prisoners
2: the prisoners at at this stage when i would uh, get a prisoner he would be in our hands for about half an hour somebody had captured him or somebody he had surrendered to somebody and was immediately sent to me and to my unit so we were the first people to really talk to him and they came usually in groups of five or six there would be a patrol or there would be a communications group who were laying wires and were caught by us or something of that nature and by and large they were frightened they were very easy to get intelligence from they were willing to to you know they gave me the name rank and serial number type thing and I'd say, well, thank you, that's very nice, and that was well done. And not sarcastically, but just in a friendly way, kind of, and then there'd be a map on the ground. And i said, well, let's see now, do you know where you are? And he said, of course we know where you are. He said, well, show me, I don't, I'm not so sure that you really know where you are. And then he would show me where he is, proving that yes, you, know, you can challenge almost anybody. He said, well, then, if you know where you are, where did you come from? He said, well, here. He says, well, what is that? He said, well, that's where our battalion is and then he would stop and you know, so I said well I know who your battalion is That's, uh, you're commanded by so and so because another prisoner would already have told us that and so we disseminate information of that nature immediately so that other people can use that information so once he knows that I know what unit he's from he hasn't betrayed himself at all so I said well is, that where your, uh, is this where your artillery is he says well no the artillery is of course much further behind I don't know where they are all we have is machine guns here and there. Well, that's exactly what I wanted to know. So it was easy enough to get information. Very rarely, we, we, my, our training was in Cambridge, in Maryland, in America. There was military intelligence headquarters. And there we had learned all kinds of tricks and how to uh, use your wits to try to persuade somebody to uh, to give you information without torture. We were definitely told not to torture anybody, and as far as I know, we never did. I mean, certainly not my unit, I don't think anybody did. And, and we, we had learned how to assassinate people, you know, with a wire and with a drip from the, you know, the movie stuff. But it turned out that was not needed, not by me at least. But I had occasionally, I remember one instance, uh, must have been already outside of Normandy, after Falaise, and on the way to Paris, and we had not yet; we had just broken through, but we didn't know what was facing us. And we had there was a lieutenant and uh, two or three soldiers who had been captured, and I interrogated them. And oh, there was a sergeant, a lieutenant, and two sergeants, and they were really tough. They were they were convic- convinced Nazis. They were fighting for the Fatherland and. Fuhrer and they weren't giving anything the name ranked the serial number that was it and uh, and I really needed and I couldn't con them because I knew we had no idea who was facing us. We had no idea what the unit was. we didn't know whether it was a reserve unit, whether it was a frontline unit, whether it was uh, when they had arrived were they fresh units was it an older unit were they there nothing no idea. and so uh, the more I asked them, the more they clammed up. And so finally, uh, and there was no fighting, really. You see, there was a breakthrough situation. The enemy lines were fluid. And so we weren't, they didn't hear any artillery. There was no machine gun fire. It was all, they felt relatively relaxed for some reason. And I remember being very frustrated because I needed information. And so I finally took the sergeant behind, uh, away from the group. One of the sergeants, and I said to him, I don't remember what exactly I said to him, but I persuaded him to give me the name of the commanding officer of the regiment. I think that was in, actually, they have a Zoltbuch, a little booklet, and I couldn't read the name, but it's signed by somebody, and I asked him, Is it signed by your commanding officer? He says, well, of course, and so which frequently it isn't, but it was in this particular case. And I said, well, I can't read the name. He gave me the name. That's somehow I got a name. And then I took my pistol and I shot in the air. And I put a guard there and made sure that this guy was out of sight. And then I went back to the lieutenant and said, you're next. And I took him to another area. And he said, well, what do you mean I'm next? And I said, well, uh, the sergeant didn't talk, so... Uh, All he gave me is the name of the regiment, well, I know that, and the regimental commander, I know that, and the company commander, I don't care about, I want to know more. And this guy really tensed up, because he had, the sergeant, he had heard the shot, and he had found out that I knew something, so the sergeant had talked, and how much, I don't know, and now he was on the line, so he, he broke down. And so I got information, and then once I had his information, it was easy to get the information from the other sergeant, but that was not the common thing. There was usually when people are so early on uh, uh, captured, they're they're in shock, you know. They and I'm not. I'm not in shock, but I'm the capturer. Yeah, so I we had an enormous advantage.
0: You obviously spoke such perfect German and born yeah. in Germany. Yeah, and yeah, everything. Sure. Did you ever have any of them, you know,
2: saying calling you a
0: traitor or anything
2: like that? <laughs> no, not at all. They don't, you, it's the relationship at that stage is so different. You know, They just, they, they don't even know what's happening to them. They're coming out of a German environment, the army, the troops, they're told that if they get captured, they'll probably get shot, that if they give any information, they'll get tortured for more. And they are f- frightened, they don't, they don't ex- you, you don't go on the line and expect you to be captured. You don't go on the line and expect you to be hit. You draw on the line and go, come back. So that you're in. You're not. Pre- nobody can prepare. That's why uh, frequently later on in Korea and Vietnam, and I hear about Americans uh, cooperating one way or the other. Uh, in the you're in such enormous shock that there is uh, certainly in the beginning at least. Later on, you know, once they realize that they're being treated humanely, and they get back to division, and the information that they are expected to give has nothing to do with immediate fighting, but with the training situation and things of that nature. Then they become wise to it, and they clam up, and then they might challenge somebody. But uh, no, <laughs> nobody challenged me at that stage at all, no.
0: Well, what about uh, looking back now, 50 years later, what does D-Day mean to you now?
2: Well, I'm glad you did it. I'm glad I was there. Uh, I had was just too young for another war that might have saved the world from D-Day and from the Nazis and that was the Spanish Civil War. I had wanted to fight the Nazis then but I was too young for that but by the time I volunteered for that one I was uh, told to go back home because I was was in Switzerland and I was 17 they wouldn't take me. By the time they would have taken me it was over and the Nazis had won, the fascists had won, Franco won. Uh, No, so 50 years back I'm I'm proud that I was there, although, you know, proud is maybe a foolish term. I am proud, but it's a foolish term, because it's just, I was there because I was told to be there, but I'm glad I was one of those people, and that's about it. I think war is hell. <laughs> it's not a glorious, glamorous thing at all, and uh, it would be nice if we could avoid it.
0: Did you feel, as you said before, any extra personal sense of of, uh, motivation, having been born in Germany?
2: Oh, very much so. I felt a very strong motivation. And after the war was over, I didn't go back to Germany for 20 years. I went back to Europe many times, but I I just didn't want to have anything to do with Germany. Today, these feelings have become much uh, mollified, There's obviously an entirely, two generations have gone through who have nothing to do with these uh, horrors and the crimes that were committed. And um, uh, I feel very sorry for those Germans today who have to see the rebirth of the young neo-Nazis because there is a horrible, bad, vicious group of people who, who have those feelings who are neo-nazis and they're bigoted they're prejudiced and they are the scum of the earth and hopefully they will not be successful again
0: what about the the sacrifice though? not even not of people that you knew but the sacrifice of the other american soldiers you know some of whom didn't make it back what does that mean to you <sighs>
2: There are many people who didn't make it back. Uh, the, the invasion was not unbloody. The uh, just happens that the first few hours were very relatively easy. It became quite bloody afterwards, and uh, we all knew that we might get killed. You know, it was not a. Uh, you have no. You just don't have any choices. You have to either make it or not make it. It's just that a question of a mindset and the mindset is the army is successful in drilling the uh, frontline troops at least into that kind of perspective that you know your job is going to be a certain thing and you have to uh, do this job and those who get killed get killed i just feel that it's uh, terrible that it happened to them and i'm extremely lucky it didn't happen to me and uh, the guy who convinced me on maneuvers in america to join to apply for military intelligence because he says look you're gonna be safe you're gonna be way behind the lines you're gonna be probably in london and so it's a great deal and you still contribute something that very guy uh, got killed in the war and he was not in london he was way behind the lines he was in corps which is about maybe a hundred miles behind front lines. And he was killed by the explosion of a uh, V-bomb, the V-1, the small little sputtering bombs that came flying on the way to England, but we all shot at them. And so many of them didn't make it to England. They exploded somewhere along the way. And this guy got killed by one of those, a total freak. But that's what happened to him. And I was on the front almost all the time and I just got a small little wound and survived. Uh, you know, the sacrifice of young men in war is, is always a madness and the, I wish we could kill the leaders of the evil regimes and not the young men. So today, 50 years later, when I'm no longer one of the young men, I can say this, but at the time when I was asked to go, I wanted to go, I was stronghold to, because it was a personal type thing and I thought it would be the last war, I really did.
1: Walter Bodlander is currently living in Los Angeles. He's 97 years old. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of Warriors in Their Own Words. This program was created and produced by The Honor Project, Heroes of Our Nation on Record, narrated by Bill Ratner. This production is copywritten by Heroes of Our Nation on Record, Incorporated. Any unauthorized broadcast, public performance, or copying is a violation of applicable laws.